Hello and welcome to Season 1 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held right here on Murramurran country in the Milton Mollymock Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales south coast. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2019. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month features some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2019. Um, so to begin with, I would like to acknowledge the Murramurang people who are the traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on today. I'd also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, of the Yuan Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal peoples present. My name is Pamela Cook and I welcome everybody to StoryFest. Uh, as you all know, it's our first year. It's been a massive undertaking, um, but so far so good. So I'd like to introduce our guests today. Um, we'll be discussing the issue of ageing and what it means for people who are dealing with those who are ageing in both fiction and non-fiction. Uh, our two guests are Amal Awad. Amal is a Sydney-based writer, journalist, author and screenwriter. Amal frequently writes and speaks about issues of society, religion and popular culture in both print and online publications. She's addressed festivals, universities, youth groups, community organisations and has appeared on national radio. Amal published her debut novel, Courting Samira, a tale of Muslim courtship and coming of age in the modern era in 2010. It was a semi-finalist in the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award. She has since contributed to the anthology Coming of Age, Growing Up Muslim in Australia and her second novel, This Is How You Get Better, was published in March 2015. Amal's two latest non-fiction books are Beyond Veiled Clichés, The Real Lives of Arab, Arab Women and the book that we're going to be discussing today is Fridays With My Folks. It's a deeply insightful investigation into being part of the sandwich generation looking after our ageing parents, in which Amal writes for, from her own experience and talks to others in the same situation about a range of health and medical issues to do with caring for the elderly. I'd also like to welcome Joanna Nell. Joanna is a Sydney-based author and doctor. Her debut novel, The Single Ladies of the Jacaranda Retirement Village, was published last year by Hachette Australia and has also been published in the UK in January this year. Joe writes character-driven stories of self-discovery for women in their prime. Her short stories have won awards, uh, have won numerous awards, and as a writer, she draws inspiration from the stoic wit and wisdom of fun-loving seniors to create fictional characters who are young at heart and defy society's expectations of ageing. With 30 years in the medical profession, Joe has been in a variety of roles from emergency phy physician to psychiatrist, cruise ship doctor to NRL Club Medic. Manly Sea Eagles. <laughs> Born in the UK, Joe moved to Australia in 2003 and now lives in Sydney. Joe's second novel, The Last Voyage of Mrs Henry Parker, is due for publication in October this year 
Could we please rec- welcome Joanna and Amal to StoryFest? <laughs> just to start with, could you both tell us a little bit about the books that we're here to talk about today and just sort of how you came to write the, those books? Amal? Um, <clears throat> so I, um, my father was diagnosed with kidney failure about six years ago. And obviously, I don't know if anyone's been through that, but it's quite a traumatic experience because it, it takes a lot of sort of, um, I guess, your freedom away, really. And I saw that my dad was struggling to maybe just get around as easily as he used to. And I thought, well, I'm a freelance writer. I have a bit more time. And my father, you know, as a practicing Muslim, would go to the mosque every Friday. And so I said, if you want, I'll make sure I get you there on Friday. You don't have to drive And it became Fridays with my folks. It was just this thing and, you know, now I see them more than that. But um, at the time it was a really difficult change in my life but eventually about a year in I realised how much I'd gotten to know my parents, that they had taken on this new dimension. They weren't just these two people who brought me up anymore. They were these fully functioning complex human beings who had, you know, especially, I don't know, coming from an Arab family, we're so used to sort of making fun of the quirks of our lives, you know, the the ethnic family, funny stuff. And um, it's very easy to get caught up in that sort of simplicity and that that sort of lack of complexity. So to actually sit with my parents and, and see the layers and the trauma and the grief that people experience when their lives change was hugely important for me. And I felt like it was a very lonely experience at times as well to sort of watch someone's mortality being dealt with um, and how it affected me. And I thought there's no instruction booklet, there's nothing out there that feels accessible for people to just understand, well, how do I deal with this on a personal level but how do I help the person going through it as well and not take on that journey for them or think I know better. So I felt like as a journalist I do what I always do, I just start to talk to people and I I felt like there was a story in there and luckily I had a publisher who agreed. So um, that's why I wrote the book. I, I wanted to, I guess, take away some of the walls around this stuff, but also demystify all of, you know, that I think we don't like, even now to this day the book's been out for months and I still feel like it's not easy to get people to talk about ageing and illness. It's like it's so scary for people. They just don't want to think about it. And it's it's like it's not that scary. It's entirely human and beautiful to go through these things and I, I feel like I wanted to take away that charge a bit with my book. So how did your family... Uh, you know, and your parents in particular react to you wanting to write the book? Uh, yeah, I had to, uh, I asked them for permission. Um, I, I said, how do you feel about me doing this? And um, my mum's sort of the guardian of the family. She's the gatekeeper. So I really needed her to say yes. Um, and I think she was sort of equal parts chuffed, but also a little bit like, well, what are you going to say in there and everything? What emerged from the story, which was really interesting for me, was my mother's journey as a migrant. Um not realising how much she had been through coming to a country without her family um, and the decades of trauma that follow. And I have a really quick funny story if it's okay. I, she, she was flipping through the book one day and said, I, I noticed that you said I'm harvesting grief from the last 30 years. And I said, yeah, mum, you, you know, you said I could say that. She said, no, 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry, mum. I didn't get the time. I thought, I said, do we really have to go through this now? And she's like, well, it's it's when I came here till now. So how is it 30 years? And she wouldn't let it go. So it was a good problem to have. It wasn't that she was upset it was in there. It was just that it was inaccurate to her mind. Um, and, and I think that that was um, 
the hard part is my family is very private and I'm quite private too. But what we always, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Joanna, when you're writing fiction even, everybody thinks your fiction is real. And so when you're writing nonfiction, you tend to be even more careful, I think, because in fiction you think I'll slip this in and they won't know. Um, whereas nonfiction, it's there, it's out there and it's nonfiction. And so you are very selective, I suppose. But also having to honour someone's story and their privacy, it's not my journey. So I have to be respectful in how I unpack that. And that applied to all my interviewees. It wasn't just my dad and my mum. It was every person I spoke to, I had to think about, well, do they want to be anonymous? And um, within that, making sure that they're not identifiable still, you know, because there were details of their situations that were quite obvious or... There are so many factors. Absolutely. There's so much here we can we can talk about. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, Joe, for you, you know, you are a GP, you're a doctor, mm-hmm. that's your background and still working as a GP. How did that sort of field and your, your experience in that profession um, then, did that inspire you to write the book initially or did the idea from come, come from elsewhere? How did those two things mesh? Uh, well, yes and no. So I suppose we're coming from it uh, um, to it from different angles. I suppose mine uh, more from my position of, as a GP, and it wasn't my intention to write a book about aging, um, or even to have um, an older female protagonist. I starting and and my character to came to me, but I don't think that was entirely obviously by accident because my particular in field of interest within general practice most GPs have something that they're particularly interested in was um, apart from women's health which most female GPs uh, by default have an interest in was was care of the elderly and so I spend a lot of my working week traveling around retirement villages and aged care facilities um, and it was around the time we were starting to get the first few stories about that led to the Royal Commission into aged care and the first sort of stories about um, the uh, lack of transparency in retirement village contracts. Um, and there was a lot of doom and gloom around the whole retirement uh, and ageing. And it really wasn't necessarily reflecting what I saw. Um, and look, I have to be pragmatic about this because I've seen all aspects of ageing, you know, and I, I've seen lots of different types of facilities and I've seen people who are bedridden in nursing homes at 80. I have seen people who are, you know, diving out of aeroplanes in their 90s. And, and so I've seen the whole spectrum. But I couldn't help but feel that um, a lot of ageing was to do with, with attitude and, and, and something that was internalised. Um, and, and so the ageing population, and that particularly my patients would come along and say they felt like a burden. They, I don't want to be a burden to my family. Um, you know, they, they felt it was their sort of moral duty to sort of slip away quietly outside the, the, the door and, and their, their very presence, their existence was somehow inconvenient. And, and I think we have this sort of narrative in society that it's an ageing population, it's, uh, you know, it's a burden, it's a drain on resources. Um, so I was aware of that. Um, but what I saw was that the more positive, uh, the, the people that, and certainly I have plenty of patients who've turned 100, and what they all seemed to have in common was that they were very positive and cheerful. And they had some fantastic social relationships. And this is why some communities, not all retirement villages, but a lot of them are very positive environments. And so I started to go away and do a little bit of research and reading on this. And in fact, the um, the intuition was right. There's actually a lot of evidence, because I'm a bit of a science, so I have to have my evidence as well as my creative side. There's a lot of evidence to say, if you think positively, 
um, you have a better outcome. Um, it's all to do with the power of the mind. And in fact, optimists live longer than pessimists. And they did a stu study at Harvard, which was looking at freshmen um, in 1938. So these were probably people born in the 1920s. And they followed them. And at 50, um, they then followed them. A lot of them have, have since died, uh, of course, of old age. But 50, what was a more accurate predictor of your health at 80 was not your cholesterol levels, it was the strength of your personal relationships and your interactions with other people. And so what I wanted to do was to write a little bit of a different narrative about ageing. Um, even in people who have, there is one gene um, associated with uh, dementia. The dementia is a whole, uh, you know, there's many factors in, involved with that. But people who have the gene for dementia are half as likely to go on to develop dementia if they have a positive attitude, if they have positive stereotypes around ageing. So if basically worrying about ageing can make you old. So yes, on the surface it seems like Good I'm looking everyone. at it from a light-hearted <laughs> point of view. And we can come on to the, you know, the power of humour and, yes. as well. But So I wanted to, it's not exactly a, a manual for how to age well, but I think it was me trying to put over a little bit more than healthy diet and healthy exercise. It's about making connections, social connections, and, and, and that really is what's going to help people to age best. Fantastic. Can I just say actually, because <clears throat> I've taken up improv in my 40s, and I one of the things a teacher of mine said to me, and it really stayed with me as a writer, is she said life is all about how we affect each other. And improv is all about that too. So when you're on stage and you have a partner on stage and whatever you say is going to affect what they say and vice versa, and I, and I never forgot that because every story, like all story is about that. It's, yeah, it's that connectedness, isn't it? That it sort is. of in. So... With the, the whole issue of ageing, I, I guess, and writing about people, you know, in their more senior years for, for both fiction and non-fiction, you know, I think that um, society, our society in general, doesn't deal with the whole issue of ageing well. Um, how did that sort of play into the way that you sort of put put your book, for instance, Amal, together in terms of getting the research and sort of talking to a whole lot of different people as well as your parents and, and relaying your own experience, you know, were you trying to sort of broaden out and explore that idea of, of how we deal with ageing as a society and, and what did you sort of find out about that, do you think, in your research? Yeah, I mean, because we live in a Western country, I was very focused on Western society. I don't think because out of all the research I did, I mean, there are these so-called blue zones where people live till 80s and their 90s um, because they have an amazing diet and the way they live, they have healthy community, they have a healthy lifestyle or whatever. Um, you know, my dad's town, you know, back in the homeland, you know, the, the elderly live, live very comfortably until their 80s and 90s um, and it's not like they're living in a high-tech environment with the best medical facilities. They're just very... Um, I think there's a bit of a hierarchy they're taken care of. They're respected for their elderly sort of years rather than looked down upon. Uh, Western society is different. We have a nursing home fear and mentality that that's inevitable for some of us. Um, I was definitely curious. Um, I, I went in thinking there's going to be a cultural divide here, that culturally we're going to deal with this differently and actually what emerged was a gender divide. So it's that the burden falls almost 90% of the time I'd say on, on women. Maybe not. I don't know the exact statistic but 
So in terms of caring? For, yeah, for the, yeah, yeah, like a, <laughs> the expectation on women to be mothers, uh, wives, um, to hold a job, to look after a parent who's ageing, to be wonder women, um, you know, that was definitely what stood out for me by the end. I, I was really thinking, well, I want to see how Arabs do it and Greeks and Anglos and how, what's the difference there? And really the difference was, was really more gender. So that was massive for me. And what I did find as well was just how universal these experiences were. So while you can layer each person's experience with the troubles of their lives and the experiences that they, they have a cultural background or a religion or they might have a community that's different, all of these things do matter but what essentially stood out for me was the emotional currency of these experiences was very universal. I could still relate to someone from a totally different background if they were going through something similar. There was no, there was no divide there. And Joe, for you in terms of, you know, you were obviously writing fiction, so coming at it from a different perspective, I guess, but were there sort of people that you met in your practice and, in, you know, in your work that you then sort of drew on their stories and, and filtered them into the, to the fiction? Yes, no. Um, obviously, it wouldn't be ethical to tell the stories. <laughs> uh, and I have plenty of stories. No names. We don't need any yeah, names. Phone calls tomorrow. <laughs> you know, medicine is a sort of a rich, fertile soil of, uh, you know, sort of stories. And, and that's essentially what uh, what a GP is. You know, it, it's sitting one-on-one and listening to stories. And I think that's why a lot of doctors write as, as well, because you're having to literally put yourself into that other person's head to, uh, you know, to, to work out what's behind the, the, the reason that they, they've come to see you. Um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> we, did you draw on any, any particular patients or, or sort of, no, so, you know, to, to get um, your research basically Peggy, for the book? Peggy Smart is essentially a montage of all the women, 79-year-old women I've ever met. Um, and she's not based on anyone I know, but the things that she worries about, her family, um, her health, you know, she's got the usual sort of collection of, you know, a little bit of a blood pressure, cholesterol, perhaps could do with doing a little bit more exercise, cutting down on the sugar. And one of the things that I particularly didn't want to shy away from was some of the um, the challenges and indignities of, of an ageing body as well. So, you know, Peggy, if you've read it, you'll know she suffers with her bladder works and she always always within sprinting distance of a, a public toilet. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I didn't want to turn her into Jane Fonda or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, so she is this full of well. the, the, <laughs> the usual hang-ups. Um, and so she's certainly not based on anyone. And she She's a little bit sort of in a in a little bit of a rut. Uh, she's perhaps at that stage where her um, she's got grandchildren. She, her children are grown up. They're living their own lives. Um, she is a widow and she has been for about four years. And she's getting used to a new life in a retirement village and perhaps starting to do a bit of reflection. Uh, and I suppose the premise of the book is that you're never too old to change, really. So um, it was it was partly uh, about that. Um, but um, she needed a, a sidekick to somebody to sort of um, help her to to um, uh, encourage her to think differently. And this brings in her friend uh, Angie, who is a, an old school friend of hers and has lived a, lived a very different life. Angie's lived a very uh, glamorous life. And part of the question in writing the book was, what happened to that school friend? You had that girl who was always rescuing you when you were eight years old or five years old. He was always your, always your buddy. 
um, who perhaps you lost touch with. And now with social media, of course, people are, are more connected. But what would happen again if you met them you know, 50 years um, later? Are we really fundamentally very different from the people we were as, as children? So that, I think that was That's partly a great question to it. ask, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. And it's lovely to see the way that relationship plays out in the book, you know, between the two women um, and... You know, there's issues that if for those of you who have read it, you know what I'm talking about, but there's there's issues from their past that, you know, neither of them address for quite some time and that, you know, really gives that depth to, you know, we know that there's something there that they need to sort of nut out as well. But, um, yeah, both really lovely characters but so different to each other, yeah. Um, Amala, in your research for your book, you know, there's there's obviously the physical challenges of ageing um, and you, you talk about that in relation to your father and, you know, his issues with his kidney failure and, and all the, the ongoing medical treatment that he then needed uh, and you speak to a number of professional you know health professionals in that field but what are the sort of challenges obviously on top of the physical did you sort of come across and, and explore in your own experience with your parents and then in talking to other people about the challenges they've seen with their families you know that sort of not just the physical but the other challenges mm. I mean I think it's really interesting what you said earlier about um, the the mindset being important the biggest challenge was the mental block that comes up when somebody's told they can't have the vitality they once had and you know if if I take my father as an example um I think one of the reviews of the book um said something like you know he's an ambitious adventurer and I couldn't think of a better description of my father you know he's he's someone who came to this country full of dreams and hopes and absolutely fulfilled them um and his big thing is freedom, you know. He wants to just be an explorer of life and to be told you need to be having treatment all the time, forever, for as long as you live is extremely difficult. Um, and I think the the big thing especially, and I think this is maybe where there is a bit of a cultural difference. I think in uh, Western society there's a lot of uh, focus on a positive mindset and live your best life and you're 90, doesn't matter, you can still climb a mountain, you know, and, and people are taking up salsa at 95, whatever. You would never see an Arab do that. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, one of, one of the best pieces of advice I got, and it, it was instrumental, and this is one thing I was – I felt like what was really important that the book not just be a collection of stories but a, a collection of ideas to help people who are going through this so that when you read the book you can relate but also say, oh, I didn't think of it that way and this will help me. And so when I interviewed the different professionals, one of them was a geriatrician and he said to me, the biggest problem I see is when a daughter comes in with her father and the father is, you know, borderline dementia or has dementia and she's shoving puzzles onto him and getting him to do stuff that he's never done before, has no interest in. And they're arguing all the time. And she, you know, he has to pull them aside and say, he says to the daughter, um, you know, did your dad ever like puzzles before? And she says, no. And he says, well, what if I told you he just wants to spend time with you and just wants mm -hmm. to be in your company mm -hmm. and that's all he needs from you right now? And she's crying because she doesn't want her dad to suffer. Um, and basically the moral of that is don't try to change people in their older age. They know who they are. They're not kids. This is the big mistake we make in society, calling older people cute and vulnerable mm. and it's insulting. It's that patronising sort of element yeah, to it, it's, isn't it? it's just not true. I mean, if you're a horrible person at 20, you're probably a yeah. horrible person at 80. <laughs> and if you're a nice person at 20, you're a nice yeah. person. I mean, it's just – this is not, not complicated. Human behaviour is really – like you can understand it. And, you know, I met one woman – who I think she was in her 80s, and she said to me, 
I don't, I've told my doctor, if there is something wrong, I don't want to know. And I don't know how they work that, that out because I don't know what you do as a doctor if somebody says you can't tell me that I have cancer or something. But she was like, I just need, I know that that will get in my head and that's it, I'll give up. Because she said, I'm surrounded by people who don't walk, they don't swim, they don't do anything. And she was really active. And she was like, my body isn't what it was before, but I don't care. She was finding new life. And there's a whole chapter called A Throne for the Crone. And um, it's it's called crone not as an insult but because witches have a, a croning ceremony where they honour the elderly women of their tribes. And, um, and I really loved that chapter because these were older women who lived alone but they had found fresh life in their independence mm-hmm. and they weren't particularly interested in like a happy ending. They were interested in a happy life, in, in actually experiencing things that maybe they couldn't before when they were mothers or they were in a bad marriage or whatever. So... Yeah, and there's also that that thing. I loved that part you talked about the croning and you know that idea of having respect and acknowledging the wisdom that yeah. you know older people have and being able to tap into that rather than sort of that oh you you have to be looked after all the time and you know we don't tend to I don't think acknowledge that enough. You know that there's mm. there's a great source. Yes, okay, maybe there would be a little bit more forgetful than previously but yeah and I'm guilty of it like I I did it all the time and it's it's like once I understood that that's not what my father needed from me that but there's a you could use your your mind as well and go okay well physically does this person need help right now yeah and I'm going to do it but what I try not to do is talk down to my father or um you know I I'm a very empathetic person and so I probably take on his journey too much and it's to no avail there's no point in that because it doesn't make him feel better Um, So I think what we need is a mental shift in general as a society. Um, When this whole uh, Royal Commission into Aged Care happened, I thought, wow, this is going to be huge and it's not. Nobody's talking about it. And and I thought this is just because it's so scary for people. They are so petrified of this cold, you know, um, sterile ending in a nursing home as though every single nursing home is the end of the – it's not. I mean – there, you know, carers, especially like aged care workers, I'm sure there are a lot of them who aren't great, but geez, they're undertrained, they're underpaid, mm-hmm. overworked. Absolutely. They get injured because they're not given the right equipment to help people falling on top of them. I mean, it's crazy. And I just think there's such this, there's this expansive world that people just don't understand yet. Yeah, there's certainly a whole lot more that we need to be then following up on isn't there you know after that royal commission and sort of saying things have to change things need to get yeah, better just take away the charge it's not mm. get, being old it's not, it's not, not a case of can we afford this it's a case of this is how much it's going to cost to provide excellent care now how are we going to find the money for it it's not an either yeah or. and also it's stop blaming a, old people for the burden on the medical system yeah. like you know one doctor said you know i see a lot of young people it's not It's not like old people are chugging up the whole system here just because they're living longer. But we are living longer. And And by the end of the century, 25% of the population is going to be over 65. Um, I think part of the issue is that actually old age is a new phenomenon. It's a relatively new phenomenon. We're living longer. Um, You know, 100 years ago, the average life expectancy was 47 for a man, 50 for a woman. Nowadays, I think it's something like 80 for a man and 84 for a a woman. So, and and we're having children later. And I think this is why um, we're talking about this sandwich Mm. generation. I think this is why women are here here at this situation because life is... I feel like I can't say anything about women or feminism after listening to Jane Carroll because I think she said everything <laughs> so eloquently. 
Um, but, you know, 100 years ago, um, there was 20 years between the generation. A woman would have babies at 20 and she'd be a grandmother in her 40s. So she wouldn't be having young children and the responsibility of caring for aged parents and having a career and, you know, do, doing everything that and looking after her own health and fitness and, you know, mindfulness and doing everything. Um, but it, it's here. And, and I think modern medicine has, you know, obviously uh, having a greater life expectancy is a great thing and, and people are living well, but they are living longer. And so the reality is people don't die quickly. When I was a medical student uh, back in the 1980s, um, apart from doing 120-hour weeks on the ward, now you wouldn't believe that, but actually that was uh, something that's improved since then, people died more quickly. Um, they came into hospital with heart attacks and they either got better or a lot of them didn't. Um, nowadays, and, and I was part of some of the clinical trials, you know, the trials that told us that aspirin and statins were, were really good for heart disease. So we can now prevent, on the whole, most people having heart attacks, which were a great killer. So now people often live longer with multiple chronic conditions. It's not unusual for somebody in their 80s to be on a dozen different tablets, to be under four or five different specialists, um, you know, to have a whole clutch of chronic diseases. But we have, you know, they, they don't, they die from heart failure instead of an acute heart attack. Um, they survive their cancer. Even HIV is a chronic illness now. You don't die from that. A lot of cancers are either treatable or preventable. So what we're ending up with is dementia at the end. Now, dementia is a disease. It's not an inevitable part of, of aging. And it's been 100 years since Professor Alzheimer's, surprise, surprise, um, uh, described this condition. And we still don't know what causes it. And we still don't have a cure. There are things that can alleviate symptoms, but it's an incurable, degenerative, um, neurological condition. And this is what we're ending up with. And I think this is what people are actually, when people talk about, I'm afraid of aging, what they're actually afraid of is becoming, uh, you know, very dependent and frail, which is usually as a result of, of dementia in, in, in that case. So I think part of it is that the medical profession have, um, in some ways, contributed to, to this problem. And I think that there is um, an onus on us to, to try to treat this, at the moment, untreatable illness. I mean, I had a lot of uh, women say, I have a plan. If, you know, one woman had it in her family and she was like, the trick is going to be to know when. And that was quite confronting to hear a talk like that about when she wanted to end her life basically in case that that became her reality. And another woman didn't have – she wasn't worried about dementia specifically. She was worried about a nursing home fate and she, you know, pulled her fridge open and said, you know, two of these would knock out a horse. And I was like, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> and um, obviously there was a whole sort of bit of – you know, cleansing I needed to do in this process or healing because it was quite a confronting book to write in that sense. Sure. But it's, you know, I, and I feel as well like a lot of that is it's um, the family who are very worried about how to deal with it. Um, but I did have one funny story because I, this is one of those books where, I mean, I wrote a book about Arab women and it's not like you can tell people that and they'll be like, oh my God, yeah, I totally know what that's like. Or, you know, that was so niche for people. Whereas the minute I said aging, they all had a story or illness. And um, it's one of those things I can talk to anyone about and they have a story. And this one woman asked me if I was dealing with dementia in the book and I said, yes. And she said, is it funny? 
And I said, oh, well, I mean, I think there are some funny moments, but it's not a humorous book. It's not meant to be ha-ha, you know, isn't ageing great, fun, <laughs> you know. And she just had a funny story about her father having dementia and she related this story to me as someone who'd been through it. Um, you know, he was in a home. He needed full, full-time care. And um, he was very aggressive. And the son-in-law came in one day to see him and the father was um, – he was using his walker to, like, intimidate another – person in like another resident and then the son the son-in-law walked in and said oh I don't know what his name is hi Robert and he went oh hi how are you going you know and he just completely switched he went from being like this aggressor to like hey how are you going you know and she she thought it was really funny because it was just sort of so like there was such a stark contrast between yeah yeah and I I just I never forgot her because I thought she still found humor in the experience which was quite difficult and tragic for her and I could see there was a lot of pain as well in what she'd been through. Yeah, yeah I want to get on to talking about humour and, and maybe touching on that a little bit more, Amal. But, um, and this is definitely related to that. But obviously there's a lot of uh, grief and loss uh, and a sense of sort of, I guess, impending grief for us when we're dealing with, you know, loved ones who are, are on that track. Um, and perhaps a sense of our own mortality as well in seeing people we love, you know, in that situation. So... Um, you know, when you're writing about these things, how do you sort of use that issue in, in your writing and how do you deal with that yourself if you have those sort of feelings coming up as you're writing, you know, because they are quite confronting issues to write about and to be exploring. So, Joe, was that something that you had to well, deal with? Yeah, I think that's the very reason I wrote the book because uh, they say write what you know and look on, on the superficial level, you know, I knew... What a retirement village was like. I knew, knew um, but it was more about um, not knowing what was ahead, what it was, what it was like. Um, and in my family, we—I grew up in the UK, um, very typical sort of English family, very sort of stiff upper lip. And there were certain things that weren't talked about, and there's certain things that weren't done in our family. We were not—that sort of thing doesn't happen in our family. So death didn't happen in our family. Um, and part of the reason, I suppose, I had a fascination with with always older people. I had wonderful grandparents who all lived into their 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 nineties. Wonderful role models. And my uh, mother's parents were off to Spain every year to this lovely little hotel, which was like the Spanish equivalent of Faulty Towers, I think. But um, so I had these wonderful role models. But uh, and and they retired early and they had great lives and lived very fulfilled lives. But then they suddenly disappeared. Um, you know, one, one day, you know, they, they, they passed away. We can't even say it, can we? They passed, you know, they passed. And at 13, it was considered too confronting for me to go to my own grandfather's funeral. Um, five years later, I was dissecting my own, my first cadaver because you can't, take away this fascination you can't talk about aging without talking about death and so it was exploring my own thoughts and fears about that 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 led me to and of course that brings up a lot of anxiety um you know it's only i think i think human beings are the only species that actually contemplate their own death they're the only species that we know of that actually are aware that that they're mortal um, and it's quite common, I think, for younger children to, to do a lot of worrying and then we're all too busy. And then the surprising fact is that the people who worry least about dying are the very elderly. Um, and I think this is part of where the problem between the generations comes because our anxiety about 
death and ageing is sometimes worse than the older people. In some ways, they're often prepared and resigned and, and, and you know, tired. And, and at peace and tired, <laughs> tired from it. Whereas I think it confronts us. Yeah. It confronts us with our own mortality. And so we either want to not discuss it in the hope it'll never happen or go away, which, of course, it does. We have 100% mortality. Or we, yes, in, in, in some ways, we just don't deal with it well. I mean, I mm-hmm. talked about how um, there wasn't much literature on this or a lot of resources. And, and one of the things that I found when I was researching the book was I went to like a big Dimmick store in the city. And um, I mean, I went to a few bookstores book and the age, there was no real section on aging. It was all about how to stay young. Um, and so I think that to me was a really interesting idea that, that we're not actually interested in helping people grow old well, yeah. which is a natural cycle of life. We're trying to stave off anything that makes us human. And, um, I mean, even if you look at the best of Hollywood sort of fantasies, it's always like a, a, an elixir that makes you immortal or, you know, I, I don't know why we're so afraid of that. Um, I, my best friend, I talk about her in the book, she's terrified of death. Um, and it's not because she hasn't been confronted by it. Um, but I, I always feel like, for me, I think death is harder for the people left behind. I don't worry about the person who's gone. I think wherever they go is probably a much more peaceful place than this very difficult life. But I think in a modern world, um, you have daily um, sort of reminders of, I don't know, like maybe it's the actresses who are like in their 50s but they don't look at um, you know, you have a 50-year-old singer who's still dancing on the stage like she's 25 and that's fine, like there's no judgment but maybe that creates some sort of unconscious feeling in you that that's what I'm meant to be like. I'm not allowed to age, you know, in my own way um, and social media as well is constantly telling us what your hashtag best life is and, you know, all this stuff and, I mean, it's incredible pressure um, and, and as I said, this this idea that, I mean, the anti-aging creams, mm-hmm. anti-aging is like why would you anti-age something? Yeah. It's like the beauty of who you are is your experience and that comes with age. And one of the best things that I got out of the women I spoke to was I don't care about things I used to care about. For the first time in my life I don't feel the pressure to mm-hmm. be here for a man or for anyone else I'm so like comfortable with who I am and I'm enjoying life and going back to the things I loved or you know women who were never yeah yeah, they're completely free and and we're sitting here saying oh poor things they're old no they are they're mature you know they're grown into themselves and that's a really beautiful thing and it's not to say there aren't indignities or whatever you want to call them or difficulties but but I just think it's really insulting for us to project our fears onto other people when they're experiencing it in their own way and it's not fair to, to do that. I think you're right about the whole anti-ageing, you know, it's a billions of dollars of, you know, anti-fight the seven sides of signs of ageing. You know, it, and we're yes. afraid to even use the word old. I mean, would you like to drink a young wine? You know, it, you know <laughs> old, if it's an old building or an old master or whatever, it's, it's a lovely word. It, it speaks of, you know, wisdom and worth. And, and men, they're and, silver foxes if uh, they're old. Well, this Susan and Sontag talks about this. George Clooney uh, yeah. was, what, 50-something yeah. and so married women, a woman in her 30s. I mean, come on. She yes. talked about the, the double standard of, of ageing in the 70s, that women are subject to not only sexism but ageism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, that... You know, that they have to be 
stay young, look young and attractive, and then when they're no longer fertile, they just need to become invisible and go away. Um, and she said that by trying to fight against aging, that women are actually, in a way, um, feeding into to this. Absolutely. So there we go. I'm not quite ready to give up the hair dye. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on that. But, um, but yes, I think that we've got to stop. We've got to fight fighting aging, I think. The and make it something worthwhile yeah. and uh, and to look at you know it, it all sounds a little bit quaint to sort of focus on the positive um, but you know as I've said before that actually will have a better outcome than, than but let's unpack that for a second focus on positive doesn't mean be an airhead who thinks nothing can ever go wrong it's that when you look at a situation you can put a lens on it as we already do let's face it and you know being negative doesn't make you heroic, you know, it actually does make it feel worse. So something could already be a difficult experience. How I experience my dad collapsing and ending up in hospital, you know, is up to me. You know, I had really difficult moments in that waiting room, um, but it didn't destroy me. It didn't, it wasn't going to change anything my dad was going through. You know, if I thought the worst, I just had to sit in those emotional experiences, go through them, and then at the end of that, deal with the next step and I think we're so afraid of just these just be in that moment and deal with everything instead of being a hero and I need to fix everything and I need to pretend like there's no such thing as a perfect life perfection is is an illusion it's unnecessary and it's just it, it's actually very crippling I think to to go through your life thinking you have control over everything you don't and that's what we're afraid of in the west because if you look at I mean, my next book is actually all about uh, new age and self-help and all this sort of stuff because I mean I, I dip into it I love it but it's not it's a fantasy a lot of it it's trying to you know yeah. sell another way of living immortally and it's not true you know, you've yeah. got to be careful so we we touched a little earlier Amal you were talking about you know some of the funny things or one of the funny things that you you know your in your research came across and Joe, I know you do use humor in your novel a lot to sort of deal with some of the situations can you maybe give us an example of how you you do that in the book and you know how you went about using humor as a way of telling the story yeah and again I you know much as I didn't set out to write a book about aging I didn't set out to write a humorous book about aging so I actually really failed in writing this book um but it was just a way perhaps that I could um you know I could write a book which included um, incontinence, sex in the elderly, masturbation, dementia, you know, all within the same thing with a touch of, of humour. And, and life is like that, isn't it? And particularly ageing, I think, as I said before, a lot of the patients I see who do the best are the ones that come in and laugh. And, and, and I think the best person to start laughing at is, is yourself. So, you know, there, there are lots of humorous incidents. Um, and I wish I could t tell you, I'll just tell you one, one story. Um, and it's really a sort of story about a sort of hope and optimism. I actually have two, two patients that sort of stick out in my mind. One is a gentleman who decided to emigrate. He's a retired dentist, emigrated from the UK to Australia at the age of 97, which is where I, I met him. Um, lovely chap, I mean, laughed just just a very funny he was a, um used to joke he was a, a dyslexic yorkshireman and wore a cat flap on his head <laughs> so um he had a new relationship at the age of 98 and at the age of a uh, 100 and 
100 years and six months, decided to, uh, he'd like me to refer him to a plastic surgeon <laughs> to have you know, had a, a, a growth um, on his head that had been growing there for about 40 years and had decided it was spoiling it was his time. good looks. It was time. So um, he was absolutely thrilled to, to the other um the other gentleman many years ago was and this this is a sign of um optimism perhaps or or hope again um who'd had a wife who was in a nursing home with very severe dementia and really had lost her over a, a number of years it was very sad and he went to visit her two or three times a day on the bus she never knew who he was she would and if she had moments of insight she would tell him off tell him off for not ever coming to visit um, and by the time she she died, he was exhausted and very lonely. He had had no other life other than than visiting his wife, and, and was really quite quite depressed. And he was a relatively healthy man. And I encouraged him. I said, "Look, really, you have, still have a lot of life to to lead. And I think you know you you give yourself permission to get out and and to to enjoy life, to make some new friends. You know, you you you've got a lot a lot of life left." He said, okay, that's fine. And he went away and came back a couple of weeks looking a lot more chipper. Uh, a lot. <laughs> I said, oh, how are you going? He said, really well, he said. I've taken your advice and I've booked a holiday. I said, that's fantastic, yeah. Um, he said, I'm taking a friend with me. I said, oh, that, that's really good, yes. Yeah. So uh, June from across the corridor was going with him. And he said, um, I will need a prescription for the weekend, though. And oh, we, I thought that he might be needing a sleeping tablet or something. But um, no, no, he wasn't. He was after the little blue pill. And uh, he said, oh, oh, by the way, doctor, it is a long weekend. Could I have a repeat on that? <laughs> so, look. He really I, did take your advice, And Joe. Look, I'm yes. pleased to say they... they you know, subsequently got, got together and it's a, it's a lovely, happy ending. But, you know, again, where life had seemed to finish and there was a new new life at the end. So. <laughs> That's great. I'm sure you've got whole dozens of those stories. Yeah. Oh, dozens, dozens. Amal, <laughs> <laughs> in your, you know, obviously it was a difficult situation for you. You were dealing with your, your father's illness, but in your own experience with your parents or in the research, were there some other funny sort of, ex, you know, stories that, that came out? Yeah, and I'm, I'm like because I wrote this a while ago. Now I'm trying, trying to remember, to remember. like the, the best ones, and I try to sell it to you a bit. But um, look, it's I mean the thing that was quite humorous was sometimes the way people said things, not what they said. So I'm not trying to belittle anything here. But one woman I remember, you know, because you you say well what's going on with you, and, and so she had this shopping list of conditions, and the way she talked about them was like it was like she was reading out a shopping list. And I've got diabetes and I take something for this and I do this. And it was really funny because it was just so normal for her and it was no big deal. And then another woman I interviewed said that when my friends and I get together, we all start with the organ recital, which yeah, is basically yeah. everything that's failing in their bodies. Yeah. Um, um, and with my own story, my parents um, are very funny, not always intentionally because they've got this bickering kind of thing happening and um, the, the way I actually got the inspiration for this book was in one of those moments when they were bickering over something completely irrelevant. And I remember just sitting there watching them thinking, wow, I just gotten to know my parents and they're so funny, you know. And one time was my mum. She just likes to throw these truth bombs. Like now she's older, she doesn't care, you know. She she brought me up to be this good girl, you know, and be really respectful and private. And now she's like throwing truth bombs from the back seat over everything and bringing stuff up from like 30 years ago and 
she said to my dad one day just to rouse him a bit because he wasn't like really, you know, he's quiet. She calls him the silent man. Um, she said he's like an Arab groom, groom at his wedding because <laughs> he's just <laughs> sitting there. Um, and, and she'll say this out loud in front of him and he just sort of sits there. And anyway, and then he, what the funniest moment was when she said, I don't know, I think she just really wanted to get a reaction. So she just went, you know what your problem is? You don't like women. And my dad just sat there and I was like driving and I, uh, dad, I think mom's trying to tell you something. And, and he just went, that building is so tall. And cause that's my dad's default. Like he's, he's obsessed, just sort of zoned out. Yeah. But like he's obsessed out. with the progress of Sydney. Like Sydney's just being reconstructed. And so everywhere we go, look at that building. I wonder how many stories it is. And so like this big moment, it's pivotal. Like my mom's saying this thing and I'm like, wow, why did she never say this to me before? You know, like, and then she's, and dad's like, that building is like, I just thought that was really funny. And I mean, <laughs> it's in his own world. And it just, is, yeah. But it was also his way of saying, I'm not engaging oh, on yeah, this. Yeah. You know, this is You're not quite right about those, those filters that come off yeah. though. And the, the, the truth that comes out and I think some of the humor actually comes from the interaction it's the bickering between the bickering the, yeah it's and, very funny yeah you know which comes from a place of affection really yeah, but mom, but yeah. you know somebody that you know really really well and that's you know that um yeah, between the generations as well you might notice this with women you've dealt with especially but I feel like there's so much undiscovered treasure in a woman's life um you know a lot of the older women I interviewed and my own mother I don't think they've ever had the opportunity to really explore their potential so I, I just think how much better would this world be like right now if all these women had had that opportunity to get the education that they desired or um you know uh, actually do the jobs that they wanted because they're hugely intelligent and vibrant and excited about their own potential but they were busy you know, looking after everyone else's needs. Um, and I think, you know, that's really something that's starting to come into the collective consciousness now. People are starting to see that, you know, women have had to sacrifice so much in their lives. Um, and if it means that at 70 they finally realise their voice and they finally realise what they think and feel about things. Because you can be in your 30s and not know what kind of furniture you like what colour you like because everyone around you has always told you what to do. But I think this is something peculiar to particularly women who are, you know, listening to, to Jane Carroll, I think that, you know, that, that there's there's um, things that are definitely changing. But the women who are um, you know, sort of housewives in the 50s really, Mad you know, um, so they really sort of lost out because, you know, their mothers and grandmothers had been, you know, uh, for 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 jobs, they had gone out to work in the the world wars. They've seen their daughters and granddaughters reap the benefits mm -hmm. of feminism. They're the ones who were sold this lie, really, mm -hmm. at yeah. the end of the Second World War, and it was propaganda, really, mm -hmm. that put them back in the kitchen, you know, with a choice of, you know, this formica top or that, and you know, mm -hmm. a new <laughs> aspiring to a vacuum cleaner, and they were mm -hmm. sold this image of the perfect housewife which is what Mad Men really I think that which show is, Mad Men is really mm. about that isn't it it's actually really not about in a way it's about Don Draper this executive but it's really about the women of that time the as whole well society, like the, yeah we do need to move on to question time we've got one down the front here thank you I think that fear of aging is a very real thing but even more than that I think it's fear of poverty when aging, that is, is well, in my experience, is the most pervasive problem and the greatest worry, the fear that you're going to have no money when you're of an age when medically you need more assistance, mm -hmm. you can't earn money 
and you may not have a family that can step in and be your advocate and all of a sudden you've got to face my aged care portal yourself and you're broke. Um, And is that just my experience and what I'm – the people I'm talking to or do you see that from, from your experience as well? I definitely dealt with that in the book, um, in the throne for uh, in a throne for the crone. Um, a couple of the women I interviewed were living in low budget housing um, or apartments. Um, they they definitely had financial concerns. Um, they some of them were in debt. I mean, I know there's a lot of media around poverty, especially for women as well. Uh, my aged care is still a baby. You know, it's still it's got a lot of teething problems. Um, I deal with that as well. Uh, one thing I did do is I went to a this was specifically a migrant centre, like they were helping a lot of migrant communities um, deal with my aged care and um, because they've changed the rules around it, it affects like the whole industry really in terms of how the money is allocated. So a person is given a certain portion of money to say, okay, you can you can put this to any service that you want, whether you want someone to come and shower you three times a week or this is kind of, I'm, I'm summarising this a bit crudely, but if you look into it, it used to be that organisations would bid and get all this money and say, we're going to take care of these things. Now they're, they're trying to empower the elderly with their own budgets so they can choose where their money goes, which has turned the whole industry upside down. And so, yes, I do deal with it. I think there are teething problems there. I think that there is more help than people realise. I think the lack of knowledge is the big problem here. Um, I do think there are a lot of people who are willing to help as well. Um, like these centres, I would encourage people to contact community centres and things because there are people who they, they're not – they really are helping people who don't have those family support networks because there are a lot of people in that situation. Jo, would you agree? Oh, the, I mean there's so much in that really. I don't have the answer to the, the poverty. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the care providers are profit-driven. Um, yeah. And I don't know how you how you deal with that in a, in a market economy. I think we need to get a little bit more inventive um, about how we um, – look at particularly with housing and, and care and you know um you know perhaps look at sort of co-sharing co-house um what am i trying to think cohabitation so um where a, a younger person perhaps a, a student moves in with someone who has room in their house and in exchange uh, gets you know a board in uh, or um low rent in exchange for um for help and aid um but you know it comes back to what i was saying earlier is this is what it costs uh, to provide a good service um, and I think we just have to reprioritize I know that sounds a little bit idealistic and I think also talking about it with our families early on as well I think what happens is that um, it's not spoken about and then a crisis happens and, suddenly and this problem, conversation yeah. happens you know in the car park at the hospital after someone's fallen they they then have to go somewhere. So it's inevitably going to be an ex, you know, expensive nursing home or, you know, you've got your, your great nursing home with a, a lot of facilities and wonderful, which costs this, or it's, it's this less favourable option. So I think if we start to talk about it a little bit more, obviously we can uh, come up with solutions as a society, but also in, as individuals, I think, sort of planning way ahead. But you're also saying that a lot of people feel like they're a burden and that was a huge thing that comes up in the the book and even since when I've done um, radio interviews, people would call up and say, I just 
feel terrible asking. And my mother gave me a hard time for the first year. She's like, why are you coming? I don't want you here. Go home, you know. And and it's like, well, this isn't just about you. It's about me and it's about dad. And 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 eventually we we fell into a better rhythm and it became a lot more, you know, peaceful in that sense. But the change was happening to my mum too. The change yeah. was – so there's this immense amount of guilt on the parent feeling like they're taking you away from your life. Yes. Um, so there's so much to, to grapple with in terms of that as well. Firstly, I want to say, Joanna, I loved your book. It was so funny. Thank I worked you. as a registered nurse and in ED and we had a book called The Doozy Book so I can so relate to a lot of the <laughs> stories that you can't put in your books. Uh, and Amal, I've bought yours. I really relate to that as well. Any advice for aspiring writers? We've got, well, with Natasha's written about <laughs> aspiring writers <laughs> in the front row. <laughs> in terms of any tips you have and things you found that worked really well, getting your manuscripts finished? Secrets to finishing your book. Jeez, secrets to finishing. <laughs> I think there's there's nothing else for it but to just sit down and write the book. And I know people have different processes, but in my case, I don't look back. I just keep going. It's like this sort of flight of fancy. Um, and you can get very hung up with reading what you did the day before and making the beginning very good and working on that. For me, I just have to put the whole thing down. And so I would say momentum is the thing. And, you know, the only way you've got to write the book is to write the book and not, um, you know, they say writing is in the rewriting and I think that's true I mean maybe Amal's um you know your your process might be be different but I think that's the one thing is you have to get it down I think um I know the common phrase is write what you know it's really write what you enjoy writing about I I don't think it's that complicated and it's going to be really hard and boring for you if you're writing about something you Mm -hmm. think you should write about um having said that it can still be really hard and boring writing about stuff you like um I don't know you'd have to ask my husband who what I'm like to be around when I'm writing it's a really difficult process I would say with writing I I feel like there's there's like you've got to be really clear on what what is what am I trying to achieve and am I open to it achieving something else because you keep talking about I never set out to do this Mm -hmm. and I never and yet you did and that's because there was a a co-creation happening somehow of you and whatever the muse is or whatever is happening has come together to create this beautiful book and Mm -hmm. you needed to show up for that and so you have to show up for your work um and it's okay if you have your quirks. I do. Like I have a million procrastination techniques and I can give you those privately. Like it's – but I have to get – like you have to move past the procrastination and that's where people fall down. It's the starting the book. Once you started, honestly, it's that's the hardest part because you've got this very clear idea in your mind and it's so like you feel it in your body almost and – but there's no words on the screen and – like this isn't going to happen once you actually start to see it come it becomes real and it gets a lot easier to write and you find that momentum i think i agree you have to write what you love find the momentum (laughs) thank you so much we have run out of time can we thank amal and joanna for being here today Thank you for listening to this podcast from StoryFest 2019. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at StoryFest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.